0: I was raised in Bermondsey, Southeast London, which is a notoriously racist area at the time. The school that I went to, I felt was representative of the community that we were living in. And so from very early on, I experienced and knew very well what racism was. You know, no one gave me any context, no one. I just assumed it happened somewhere, A4 or 6, A13, like one of the big motorways. And I remember driving past that scene and in my head thinking, damn, like, That's a terrible accident. I hope whoever's in that accident survives. I started moving slowly away from the music and became a lot more invested in my actual career as an educator. So then when it it got to December and I was like, this is not working for me. I'm a bit bored, basically. I feel unfulfilled. So um, I knew I wasn't going to work in the mainstream primary school as a teacher.
1: And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally, through the lessons and the life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. You know what, yeah, I know it's not, um, I know it seems like I keep on doing this, but my guest today, I'm going to start off with a disclaimer, he's an Arsenal fan. And the reason why I'm starting with that, it seems to be a coincidence that a lot of people I keep on bringing on our Arsenal fans, but it literally just something I discovered. But outside from that, actually, the reason why I really want to talk to him today, because he is the assistant head of, of a primary school, um, Eastbourne Community School. And it's such a rarity to not only find men, but black men in particular, who are in like school and education, like something I never had kind of growing up. And first time I had a conversation, I was like, right, man, like, love love what you do and love your approach. Because outside of that, like, he's, he's a Senko. so for those who don't know what that is, um, special education, needs coordinator. He has taught in various schools in the last, like, decade and stuff. He's also the director of the amazing Reach Out um, project we are going to delve into. But I have Emmanuel Awoyelu. Yeah, you got I said that second correctly. Time, second yeah. time. Second time, second time, again, again tongue-tied. like, come on, man, she know the name, like, it's a your name, like, come on. With,
0: with but that's accent. who I've got in the building today. With the accent as well, yeah, no, thank you, man, I appreciate that. I love the best part of that intro is me being an Arsenal fan. Um, winning energy, you need that on here, man, you need that winning energy. Listen,
1: listen. right back now, we're, we're loving it, so let's ride with it. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, I'm going to milk it as long as I can, man. But no, thank you for having me today, man. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure.
1: Bro, well, it's like, honestly, when I was delving a bit more into um your story, I was, I think what I'm really fascinated by was when I look at your younger years and your relationship with school and what you do right now, I was like, how did you go from where you were being expelled um excluded from school to actually working in schools? I was so curious and fascinated by that. But before I ever went there, I was even more curious, like, what was it like for you, like a younger you, coming up in in the UK in the education system, navigating?
0: So for me, navigating the education system as a, as a youth was difficult. Um, so my parents came to the UK in the 1980s, and for them, both for different reasons, um, didn't receive formal education. So I think one of the first things I heard from my parents consistently was the importance of education and the reason why I needed to go to school and get an education full stop. I was raised in Bermondsey, Southeast London, which was a notoriously racist area at the time. And uh, my experience of education, you know, it coincides with my experience of being raised in Southeast London, Bermondsey in a racist area, because the school that I went to, I felt was representative of the community that we were living in. And so from very early on, probably far younger than it should be for for a young, a young child. I experienced and knew very well what racism was. I felt it secondhand for my parents and their personal interaction with teachers and with head teachers. And for me, I think maybe even as early as seven, eight, when I was in like year four, I kind of already made up my mind that education wasn't the place for me as a student, as, as a child. And so my back was against the wall in that sense, you know, certain members of staff couldn't talk to me because I, I could see that they didn't have a level of respect for me. They weren't kind to me. I knew how they would speak about my parents and I would know how my parents would also speak about them. Because I'd be I'd listening to conversations with my with my parents and seeing how they're angry about the way the school are dealing with them and talking to them as kind of a second-class citizen. So my first experience of education being a primary school student wasn't a positive one and it ended really abruptly and quite negatively when I got excluded in year five. And so that exclusion I think for my family was quite significant because I'm the eldest of three. Um, Up until that point I think they could appreciate that there were other factors that led to my exclusion. I was a cheeky you know, mischievous child. But I think as an educator now, I can appreciate also that if you don't engage a child in their education, they're more likely to also be mischievous and get into trouble. I also don't think they, they catered to the needs of all of the children. So it wasn't very inclusive anyway. So so, so yeah, I, I got excluded in year five. My parents made a very difficult decision to, to move me to East London. Um, not sure if they thought it was necessarily going to be better, but they moved me to East London. I started a new primary school in year six. Um, in East London, in Newham. And that, for me, was probably the best year of, of primary, for sure, and one of the best years of my educational experience. Um, I had a very warm teacher, very kind. I don't know if you remember Ali G from back in the day. I'm sure you do. So uh, Ali G being, like, so iconic for us as a primary child. I remember our teacher used to uh, read the register, and uh, everybody in the class would respond with I, you know. And it was just little things like that, you know, kind of just the creativity, the warmth, it was just free it was very loose i don't know if the type and the nature of school had a part to play in it because my previous school was a roman catholic school like i said in the heart of bermondsey a notoriously racist area this primary school was in east ham one of the most diverse boroughs in the whole of the country just a typical state comprehensive school Um, and so my experience was was pretty good there and then fast forward to secondary i then moved to a secondary school in east london in east ham And I experienced my second school exclusion in year 10. And leading up to that, I guess there was kind of a pattern in that my parents would come to parents evening, my dad in particular. And after every parents evening, it would be the same message. And that message was Emmanuel, crazy potential, but he's not fulfilling it he's not engaged, or there's this issue, or he's always kind of involved in something else. By the time I got to year 10, that was the message I had in my head. Like, you know, yeah, I've got a lot of potential, but I myself could not tell you why I wasn't doing particularly well. I was almost coasting through through secondary school. And um, it got to year 10, and then I had a very significant experience. Um, I I got excluded after being in a classroom with 30 other children. I was doing my science lesson. And me and my best friend at the time, we were probably talking or messing about, something happened and the class teacher asked us to leave. So we left and as we were walking down the corridor, we realized that we needed our coursework because the type of science, the GCSE science that we were doing was applied science where our coursework for the two years is what would go towards our final grade. There was no exams. So we walked back to get our coursework, knowing that even if we were gonna get kicked out, we needed to have our coursework done, ready, so we walked back, the teacher wasn't prepared for us to come in. Uh, we made an attempt to go and get our coursework and then she tried to basically hold our work. And then a little, don't even know if the word's not a scuffle, but basically there's a tugging on coursework between myself and the teacher and my friend and the teacher. All the coursework falls on the floor. We attempt to pick up our coursework, we get it and then we walk out. And um, a couple of minutes later, um, it felt like an episode from the bill we had, you know, people running down the corridor saying, hey, come back, come back. And long story short, they were accusing us of assaulting the teacher. We said there's 30 other children in the classroom, go and ask them, we did no such thing. Other members of staff say, no, we heard it from next door. They did this, they did that. Um, so yeah, our parents were called in and you know, quite, quite abruptly. They uh, made a decision and, and decided to exclude us from school. So that was that. And then um, when it came to reviewing that decision, after a period of time, I wouldn't say it was reversed, but they took a different approach and they put us into an internal exclusion, which meant that we were in school, we were on the premises, but we weren't able to go to every single class that we were taking, only our core subjects and our core subjects would be taken in a room um, led by an academic mentor. And so we spent most of our final year and a half, I would say, in internal exclusion. And that had a massive effect on my educational experience because I left school, consequently with only four A to C GCSEs and the ripple effect of that was that I could not go on to then go and do my A levels straight away um, I was a year behind my pairs yeah so that was difficult because obviously my first year of college all my friends are now doing the A levels and I'm retaking my maths GCSE I'm doing BTEC media I'm doing a diploma here and there to fill up the time um, so I, I completed my Mass GCSE that year 2017 I believe July I completed it and then that summer as we were getting ready to start college um, and my first year of A-level a week or two later in September on the 25th of August my best friend whom I was excluded with him and two other of my good friends from school they tragically passed away in a car accident and uh, two survivors who were also my friends the brothers um, they survived the accident but one of them I guess you could say up until today was still or is still recovering and still learning how to uh, walk and talk effectively Um, and so that happened when I was 17 and then what happened then was me basically you know the first part of my a-levels was really disrupted because I kind of went I, I went into essentially depression not diagnosed but I know I was in depression I stopped attending my classes Having anger bursts, anger outbursts within the college. Um, I've even got a certificate that says the only child that smashed the window and uh, found a way to get away with it. I think that was handed to me in the second second part of my, my, my A level. So, um, did you talk to anyone about it? So, no, I didn't, not officially, not formally. Uh, my college didn't have anything specific in place, like a counselor or whatever. Um, I did have an English teacher that I was fond of who. Funny enough, her children just so to go to my school. So she was aware, she was there for me. It wasn't structured, but I knew I could kind of confide in her if I needed to. I guess the people that I really sought comfort and support and help from were my peers, my friends. It was only a year after we had left school. So you can imagine that was the one incident that actually brought many of us back together again. And at the spot where we lost our three friends, we spent the next three, four, five weeks every night straight together at the place where they had passed away and as toxic as some moments were it was for us who probably you could describe a young group of boys from East London different dynamics with families and stuff like that that for us was probably the best thing we could have which is each other and because of that experience we were able to suffer together grieve together and I could honestly say actually if it wasn't for what took place that summer night I don't think many of us would have stayed or remained friends or have the level of friendship that we have today, if not for the bonding that took place then. Does that make sense? Because we all have that one thing that just holds us and keeps us together. You know, we had cousins of our friends who we knew loosely now some of our closest friends, because as a result of just all of us coming together, for our friends just more relationships were created and developed as a result of that and that's the one thing that actually brought us together so although their death was incredibly tragic i guess like everything in life there was some type of um beauty or you know life that came out from it as a result so um so yeah so that was my educational experience and all that came with it and and it was very difficult to navigate for different reasons institutionally (laughs) It was difficult, but then life also happened and nobody could have predicted what would have happened on that night. Ironically, I was supposed to be with them on that night. And if not for my mum being the Nigerian mother that she is and said, you will absolutely not leave this house tonight. And me soaking in my room and not being able to go out with my friends who were out that night. I could have easily been in that vehicle with them. We all lived on the same road, you know, like we were together all the time I just couldn't go out that night for whatever reason so
1: do you look back on on that night now with the fact that you didn't go out and how life has looked very different for you like how do you look back on that night I'm curious do
0: you know what's funny yeah I've never really kind of looked at it explicitly and thought oh my gosh like imagine if I went out I say it when I'm talking about it loosely and I just say it but I think the reason why is because although actually it's a real like oh but actually you could have been 80% 80% of my friends were out that night. They just so happened to all be in the same car all together and left the venue that we were meant to be just to go McDonald's somewhere, just literally five minutes away. And then the accident happened within, you know, a couple of minutes of where we live. So it could have easily have been me. It could have easily been any one of my other friends that would have hopped in, you know. The reason why I don't think about it in a very dramatic way is I think um, before that and after that, there's been many other close death, near death experiences that I think I hold a bit more sentiment towards or I think of in a way where it's like, no, that's a night where God helped me or my mum's prayers saved me or God was looking out for me because um, something about those experiences are far more traumatic than me thinking about that night when I lost my friends, me not going in the car with them. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't really play on my mind that much. It's a reality that if my mum didn't keep me at home, Who knows what could have happened? Could have been a survivor, could have been in the car, may not have been in the car, could have witnessed it. All of those things could have happened. But what's interesting about that night that I will say that I always do reflect on is um, I remember going to sleep that night and I remember roughly from about midnight till early morning, I couldn't sleep, like something within my spirit. And I wasn't spiritual. My my mum was a born-again Christian. I... I, at that point, don't necessarily think I was a practicing Christian or whatever. So I didn't even know that it was a spiritual thing per se, but I remember feeling uneasy, um, but with no understanding or explanation, I couldn't tell you why I just could not sleep. It was just insomnia, as far as I was aware. And I remember, and I always remember in the distance because my window was open a little bit, hearing sirens in the background. And although I could not link it to anything, I had no context, no nothing. It's like the reason why I remembered that is because it felt like the sirens were very significant at that moment in time. And I didn't sleep the whole night. And then about six thirty, seven in the morning, I get a call from one of my friends. And he's like, Have you heard? And I'm like, Have I heard what? And he's saying, You yeah, uh there was an accident. This there was an accident that's happened like this morning, like some at some point this morning. And they're saying they're saying that three of them, have, three of them have died, and one of them is Jess. No, they said no. I think he said one of them is Idris. One of them, I think he said one of them is Idris. One of them is Raymond, but we don't know who the other one is. But they're saying three of them. And I remember just like dropping the phone and sobbing, and then having another friend that calls me after and they're saying, "Yo, Manny," and it's like that second call for the confirmation. Yeah. So I remember that night for different reasons, because I remember not being able to sleep. I remember how I felt when I received that call. I remember running to my friend's house who had reportedly died, but we, weren't, we wasn't sure because it was meant to be one person in the hospital that we knew was there, but we weren't sure who it was and whether that person had passed or not. I remember walk, running with like my bare feet or, or socks on to my boy's house who lived just around the corner to be greeted by his younger sister. When I opened the door, so when she opened the door, I could just tell by her face something was wrong. I knew at that point, you know. I said to her, Where's Jess? Where's your mum? And she just said with the straightest of face, no emotion. It's like she didn't really understand what she was saying. She said, my Mummy and Daddy have gone to the hospital. Jess like Jess is Jess is not here. Like that Jess is Jess is dead. And she even went as far to tell me that um that that he went blind before he passed away, you know. So and this girl, she's in my younger brother's age. She was probably year six at the time because she's in the same year as my brother. And I, she just said it, like, like, just said it. No emotion, no real realisation of what she was saying, I don't think. Um, and, yeah, and I, I broke down again. And then shortly after, my parents rolled up in the car and told me to get in. And they said, what hospital? I said, Whitechapel. That's what my friends are telling me. So... My mom had some stuff for me in the car we drove straight to 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 Whitechapel hospital and um i never forget this part either what was crazy is as we were driving to the hospital not far from our where we live a few minutes down the road there was a section of the main road that was blocked off and i remember seeing a double decker bus completely the front of it written off i saw a car that looked like chewed up in the middle of the road and I didn't know that that's where they passed, because when I heard that they when I heard that at least two of my friends had passed away, and there was one potentially that was dead, when I'd heard all of this and it was a car accident, I just assumed the motorway. you know, no one gave me any contact, no one, I just assumed it happened somewhere A four six, 13 like one of the big motorways, and I remember driving past that scene and in my head thinking, "Damn, like that's a terrible accident. I hope whoever's in that accident survived. And it turned out that that was actually the same accident in which they had passed away. So we were driving to Whitechapel Hospital. We drove there. My parents dropped me off. I quickly ran inside. And, you know, I had a number of my boys that were already in the hospital. One of my close boys, um, he ran up to me and just gave me a hug. He was weeping. I knew that whoever it was that was in there definitely wasn't alive anymore. And the reaction of my friends who for the six, seven years i would known many of them, never seen them cry, never seen them like that. I knew it was bad, so um, yeah, they confirmed. But he came up to me, said, "It's Jess, like Jess, like is is gone, bro." We we walked. Well, I I walked, I think, with one of my friends along the corridor to to where he was in the room. As I was walking, I'm walking past one or two family members, his cousin that I went to school with, and I, I walked into the room, and he was there, you know, laying there. His mum and his dad were beside him, and um, yeah, like my best friend was just lying there on the on the table. So I got to see him in some ways. He was he had passed already at that point. Um, but he was unrecognizable. He's, he didn't look the same, you know. He was a handsome Congolese boy, dark skinned like myself. We actually used to get confused a lot together at school. Like teachers would always get us mixed up. Quite racist in itself, actually. But yeah, teachers would always call me Jess, like and it's like that's Jess over there, miss. And um, yeah, he was he was there and he was I remember saying that's not him, like it's not him. It doesn't it's not him, you know, his face, his nose was blown up. His face had all been blown up. Yeah, and there he, there he was laid there, you know, dead. So, So that was that night and the experience and everything that came with it. But that had a big part to play in not only my educational experience because of the way it impacted the next phase of education for me, but it also had a big part to play in how I decided to live my life after that and so at a very young age which I think seven, 17 is still young because I was in adoration of my friend you know I looked up to him we were the same age but I really looked up to him like a big brother he was fierce he was the strongest you could say we had racial wars a lot of racial tension in our area at the time and he was probably the most feared in our group you know um, and he was so highly respected that even when they had passed and we were like at the spot where they had passed away we had a number of cars roll up to us at one point and it was it was some of these boys that we had been fighting for years, you know, after school. Some of them went to our school and um they hopped out of the car and we were thinking, these got these ain't got no respects, but cool. Everyone's mad today. They're gonna see what mad is. And they hopped out and they, they, they came to show their respect and say, Listen, you know, we know what we've been going through over the last few years but nobody would have expected this, you know we had respect as much as we had our issues that like we had mad respect for him. And they, they came to, to show their respects and just say, listen, you know, it is what it is. It's squashed. And again, that was a very big moment as well, because if you know anything about Newham at the time, especially in the uh, early two thousands, the racial tensions between the black African Caribbean community and, and the Asian community within East London at that time, it was, it was crazy. So that, In some ways, at least within East Ham, Plasto, Stratford, the local areas, that really was the end of a lot of that racial tension, you know, because nobody would have expected it. You know, Um, it was a big loss to the community, to the wider football community. Raymond, who passed away, was actually a professional football player. I played for QPR at the time. Yeah, I remember the story. Yeah, yeah. And when you Raymond. said the
1: name, I was like that took it back. I was like, whatever he played for KPR. I remember yeah. he's he was gonna go and do some I remember him being in in the news and they talked about him. So yeah. I was like,
0: wow. Yeah. yeah, he was touted for England. Yeah. So um so yeah, Raymond was two years older than us. He was in school, he was two years older than us. But yeah, but Jess and Idris and everyone else, bar one, we were all the same year group, and and one of them was a year younger than us. And, um, yeah, yeah, so it hit the school community, it hit the local community, it hit the football community, it hit the local football community because they were all aspiring footballers, all of them that had passed away. I think Jess and Idris, on the morning, one of them anyway, on the morning that they passed, actually got a letter through the post saying that they just got through to uh, Fulham, Fulham trials. Um, so, so, yeah, so big, big, massive loss. And that, like I said, shaped the way I chose to then live my life, my perspective on everything. Essentially, when I saw the impacts that my boy Jess in particular, but they all had massive impacts for different reasons, but my boy Jess, because he was my closest friend at the time. When I saw how he lived his life and the impact he had on me, on my closer friend, closest of friends, I said to myself, there's definitely such thing as having an impact on people. Um, he didn't have much achievements, maybe financially, hadn't done anything specifically, but people loved that guy. And so I said to myself, you know, I'm gonna carry on that legacy and whatever it is that I do, I leave the room, I leave my school, I leave, no matter what function I'm at, people are gonna know, people are gonna know me for the good reasons. You know, legacy became important to me after that death because they left such a big legacy that I just thought to myself, well actually that's exactly what we need to be doing as human beings. Like when God forbid anything happens to me, how will people talk about me? did i make people feel what did i give them that they can hold on to for the rest of their life you know and so even at 17 he taught me so much that yeah I, i use that now in every every aspect of my life so so yeah man like i said even with death life brings opportunities for growth for new perspective for blessings and so as tragic as it was like i said there's been many many beautiful things that have come come about as a result of that so so that played a big part of my educational experience and why i found it difficult to navigate
1: if you haven't already can you please follow the podcast it really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it In apple podcast if you click the three dots in the top right of your app Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. How did that then, that new, what I want to call looking at life differently, thinking about legacy, thinking about impact and making a difference, how did that lead you down that path of
0: actually becoming a teacher
1: and then rising up the ranks and doing a lot of the great work that you do right now
0: yeah so it's, it's interesting um didn't really have no real action plan in regards to this incident happening if anything it was the opposite like i said i went through depression i wasn't taking part in my college course i was able to kind of get my head down in the very last year of my a levels and do enough to get through in clearing to to go to university again i didn't really have a massive plan i did channel a lot of my emotions at the time through music so um i'd always i I had always been very creative um in terms of writing and acting and and that kind of thing and so i channeled that into writing for music i became semi-popular rapper within my local area had dropped at least one mixtape so i did channel a lot of my grief and my um experiences through music as many young young boys do and so when i went to university didn't really have much of a plan other than i'm just going to university because there's no way i'm going back to my house my parents won't even let me walk back into that door if university is not on the agenda (laughs) so i just went to uni because i knew that that's what i had to do but no plan i didn't know what i picked i picked my subject at university based on the show that i love the most so I went to university and studied criminology and, and, and sociology because I was obsessed with criminal minds and CSI. <laughs> yeah. So so I went to university and studied criminology for that reason. And I loved my course. I loved it. And, you know, and I did well. And I guess that leads on to the fact that, you know, when I went to university, that was the first time I tasted any type of educational success. You know, you could say in some ways I'd failed education up until that point. I left with basically... Not enough GCSEs to even class it as GCSEs. I failed my A levels, I probably passed maybe one maximum, two of them. I got through by clearing. So at this point, I'm coasting borderline, failing everything. So university, when I graduated with a two-one degree, that was the first time I tasted any kind of educational success. Um, it was the proudest moment of my life, up until that point, because for my parents, knowing how important it was for them, the eldest is now a graduate, Is it you know, that is so important to them. Even though I'm like, this is yeah. just a piece of paper. This don't mean anything, like that picture on the wall don't guarantee anything for the next 10 years. But having that this picture of holding there? up your degree, that is gold. Like everyone in Nigeria or their state I know received that, that picture. So, and it's a big deal, fair enough. Like I said, my parents weren't educated formally. So for them, this is now like their dream come true in some ways. You know, they came here for that moment. So fair enough. So that happened. But again, I didn't have a plan. Didn't have a strategy. Never really knew what I wanted to do. I had many aspirations, but nothing that I was, other than music, to be fair. I was very passionate about pursuing music. But being a footballer, being an actor, these are all things that I wanted to do, but didn't care enough to really pursue it. So I left uni and had no plan. Went back home again now. And the first few months, um, I'm jobless of course, cause there was no planning. I got some multi-sports coaching badges. I started working for a company and delivering sports clubs for schools around Tower Hamlets. So lunchtime clubs, after school clubs. And in one of those schools, I just built up a good rapport with the kids, you know, really good relationship with them. Really good relationship with the staff members. I'd be there. So i just said to the head teacher one day i just said to her listen um i don't mind staying after or coming early because i'm basically working two hours a day for the whole week not even making enough to really support myself or even my girlfriend at the time but for me it's just i love being in the school so i said listen if you need someone to come in i'm happy to help in the classroom help the children whatever i'm just talking as work experience for free and she said oh um one of our male teachers or teaching assistants is leaving for paternity leave, he's just had a child and he supports a child with SCN. But if you go through an agency, you can sign up to them and then let them know that you've got a school and then we'll pay you for the two weeks. I said, oh, perfect. I wasn't thinking about that. The two weeks turned into five months. This was like maybe like January, February. I was there till July. And it was within that period of time that I realised, oh, education is where I'm supposed to be. This is another skill or talent that I have. I love working with children young people so so that happened and then i then started looking for teaching assistant jobs they said look no further come here but i started looking elsewhere kind of gave them a bit of an ultimatum i said like i'm going to look other places now and you know they make they make it work don't they when you give them an ultimatum so so they, they gave me a job there so i did that for a short while maybe like a year or two two years i'm not sure how long i was a ta for and then very quickly my head teacher realized that i had a skill in teaching and so I would be covering lessons aside from me being a one to one support for children with like complex needs. I'd be covering lessons, I'd be doing this, doing that. I'd be leading football, organizing tournaments across the borough. But it was the teaching part that, of course, my head teacher noticed. So she said, Manny, you know, I think you should really consider becoming a teacher. I said, Impossible. <laughs> I said, You see the time these miserable people leave school. I leave here at three o'clock <laughs> with my football boots on I'm not being a teacher so these are marking at five like I couldn't even envisage it and I'd never even thought about being a teacher anyway I just I, I didn't care I was like no you know so she kept saying it she's Manny come on like you can do it you know and I'm like mm. you know I doubted myself but I also thought I don't care about this profession like that but then I was at a real crossroads again another pivotal moment I had my i part my wife now, but she was my girlfriend at the time. We'd been together for a few years now. We met at university. I'm a couple of years older. And there was that real challenge that I had as a man, which is, how are you going to provide? You know, you're living at home with your mum, parents, things are nice, it's rosy, but you know, what you're on, how much money you're on, what you're doing it's not sustainable. And I had a real different mindset then, I could admit. Like, I was happy being comfortable because I didn't have any major bills. I was making money and had savings in hindsight, it's not proper savings, but you know, I had so like I was like, you know, I'm comfortable and I actually remember my wife asking me at the time, like, you know, um, like what like what do you wanna do? Something along those lines, what do you wanna do? Or like, you know, and I remember saying to her, like, you know what, I don't wanna be rich, I don't wanna to have too much, I wanna be content, I wanna be comfortable. She must have been thinking, damn, my dad's gonna be so disappointed in me. For choosing this guy but i remember saying it like looking back like, i think i just want to be content comfortable i had no real major aspirations i can admit that you know so i remember reflecting on my wife asking me this question and you know talking to her whatever and i remember thinking to myself damn am i being a bit of a bum like am i being lazy you know and so i looked at this teaching thing again and i just thought to myself the reality of it is is i'm teaching lessons anyway but i'm doing so as a teaching assistant on 18 19, These teachers around me are earning 28 to 45,000, and we're doing the same thing pretty much. So, the first challenge was I know I need to make more money to do the things that I want to do to be able to provide for me and my partner, etc. etc. So, the leap and the jump was more centered around the financial side of things and knowing that I wasn't really fulfilling my, my potential. So, I did it reluctantly. Trained to be a teacher, terrible year, hated it. One of the worst years of my life. I went through physical. Issues, my insomnia developed to another level. I had chronic insomnia by the end of that year. Stress, I had a stomach ulcer, internal bleeding. All oh, terrible year. Halfway through the year, I tried to quit. My lecturer, my uni facilitator convinced me not to. She said, even if you don't ever become a teacher, do not quit halfway through the year. You've got four or five months left, see it through. Get your qualification, do whatever you wanna do after that, but at least you have that qualification. So I listened to and I I, I I I kind of pushed through the end of the year, had a lot of support. Again, lack of confidence, lack of real purpose. I didn't know. I didn't. I just didn't enjoy it. I just didn't enjoy it for different reasons. And so when it got to the end of the year, I said to myself that I'm not going to walk into a situation where I'm being miserable because I'm doing a job. I said, no way. So when my school offered me a position, I said, no, straight away, I said, I don't want to be in. I don't want to be a new teacher. Nothing to do with the school. I'll still work here. I don't want to be a brand new teacher. It's, it's not for me. And um, so they just, they were keen to keep me anyway. So they just said, okay, so what, what can we do for you? I said, fantastic. I said, I want to do football. I said, let me run my football tournaments, football coaching. I'll be more than happy to be a teaching assistant. I'll cover some lessons, do, 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 whatever. They made the role for me. So I'm doing this role now and uh, starting September, I get to December and I'm like, damn, I feel really unfulfilled. Like, you know, when you know you're you're qualified and good enough to do something, but you're not, you're just there just doing nonsense now. So it got to this. Would you think was fair though? Was it
1: fear that kind of held you
0: back initially? Yeah, for for sure, Fair was there. But yeah, it, it was fair. But it was a but there was also a genuine understanding that like I knew I did not want to work in a typical primary school because it was the environment, culture, the politics. I've never been interested in adult politics. It wasn't about the kids, you know. I saw the adults that I meant to be teaching the children are all miserable and slanging each other off in the staff room, and there's fights here. And and on top of that, it was hard. Like, teachers, the, the job of a teacher is not easy. It is hard in itself. So there was also a level of fair slash... I say laziness, but because it wasn't ever my purpose, I couldn't ever see it as, why would I go and do that if that's not what I've said I'm going to be doing? As far as I'm concerned, I'm still the meant life, to be...
1: The easy life is appealing.
0: Exactly, yeah. And remember, I'm still trying to be a rapper. So, like, I'm there thinking, this is <laughs> for me. Like, I'm like, this was meant to be paying for studio time. I'm not... I want to be a teacher. So, um, but very quickly, I, re- I, I Even organically I didn't even think about it I started moving slowly away from the music and became a lot more invested in my actual career as an educator so then when it it got to December and I was like this is not working for me I'm a bit bored basically I feel unfulfilled so um, I knew I wasn't going to work in the mainstream primary school as a teacher I didn't want to do it was not it wasn't appealing to me so I basically emailed every single pupil referral unit special school alternative provision that i could think of i just emailed them i said i want to be a new teacher in your school from the next september this is my passion this is what i want to do would you accept this and only one school got back to me and that one school got back to me and it was the head teacher of the primary school and she said oh come in come for a visit so i went to go visit and i remember going there and um when i entered the school building there was the secondary teacher of the of the school sorry, the secondary head teacher of the school, because it was a primary and secondary in one, he was restraining a child, yeah, restraining this secondary student. And the student was basically like spitting back at him, like spitting, like saying, don't come here, he's a pedophile, spitting at him, spitting at him. So I'm like, what the hell is going on here? So I carry on walking as you do into the school, like, okay, so let me start this day. I walked through the building and I just got a real good vibe, man. Classes were small, no bigger than eight children in a classroom two, three, sometimes four adults within the classroom supporting. I just saw good lessons being taught. I saw real compassionate teachers teaching lessons. i got a good vibe. I spent half a day there and I loved it. So at the end of the day, the head teacher said to me, you know, unofficially. No, she was like, oh, you know, we loved having you in the building. Everyone's talking about you. How did you feel? I said, oh, it was great. I loved it. She said, if we unofficially offered you a role there, uh, would you take it? And I said, if you unofficially offered me a role, I would unofficially accept the role like what are you saying here so um we basically were able to sort something out of my current school and long story short june 2016 a number of weeks later we were able to arrange for me to start at that school um a term before they were meant to break up so that they could give me a whole six weeks seven weeks to get used to the class that i would be taking up in september which is a fantastic experience because it gave me a chance to get to know the school, the system and get to know the class before I even get to teach them the following year. So so that was that was great. And then um, 2016, June that year, I became the first newly qualified teacher that the school had ever appointed in 25 years. And the reason why that's significant is because it was a special school. It was a special school for children with social, emotional and mental health concerns. So their profile typically of those children were many of them would have been children who had not been in formal education for a long period of time or who had been excluded. Many of them would have experienced some form of physical abuse, hence why many of them were also in care. Um, So we had a high amount of children that were in in care in the foster system. And so those common denominators obviously came with very complex, challenging behaviour. So I guess it wasn't the kind of move you would make typically as a teacher trying to teach for the first time in a school. But for me, because I knew that's where my skill was meant to be. Because I knew my skill set, because I knew where I wanted to teach, the type of children I wanted to support, what school should look like, everything made sense. You know, on the outside, it was like, why would you do that? Even my parents were like, Sean, why are you, like, what? The children are spitting at you. Like, what? Like, yeah, it's like the child, and I'm like, yeah, mom. Like, but listen, I get it, though. Like, <laughs> remember I got a student Bro, from school, yeah?
1: You, you said you, <laughs> like... walked, you walked into a school, my friend is spitting at you, and you fed a source of peace. I'm like, yeah. those two things,
0: do not make, make sense? Do not make sense? I said, got ya. like, no problem, like, so my parents so are there panicking. <laughs> yeah, my parents are there panicking. And then that Sean, like, we're really worried. Like, you know, why are you here? Like, so, so it got to the point where I had to start telling them about the stories I had of school because they were just. I'm there talking about a fascinating story. Like, listen, Mum, won't believe what happened today. Like, you know, this happened and did whatever and blah blah blah. And they're like, Sean, are you sure this is the kind of place you need to be? I'm really worried. Like, are you sure? What if a child's going to come into school and bring a gun on? You know how they exaggerate everything, you know? So I stopped telling them some of my, my funny stories. My wife appreciated them. But yeah, long story short, I was there for five years. In that time, I grew. I grew incredibly quick. I became a Senko within three years. I did a leadership course in my NQT year. On that leadership course, I saw, for the very first time, black head teachers, And that was another significant moment because it, it made me realize that Blackhead teachers existed. And for once, I saw that actually being something achievable. So that was quite pivotal. And I did that in my first year of teaching. I went on a leadership course, and I remember writing out a five-year strategy plan off the back of that leadership course, mapping out my route as to how I was going to become an SLT member after five years. And lo and behold, it happened, um, because every course, every action, every conversation, it was all led to that one goal, And that's why I say purpose is important, because before that moment, I had never done any type of planning or had anyone sit with me and spoke to me about the power of planning and purpose. Because they both work hand in hand. If you have purpose, that's great. You think you know what you're meant to do. You know your destiny. What are you going to do to get there? And I never had that explicit conversation ever. And so that leadership course, they asked, what do you want to do? Write it down. What are you going to do to get there? How, why, when? And I've still got that notepad today because it's like I look back at it and I'm like, but that is the template, the formula for anything that I want to do of success. And because I knew my why I wanted to do it and I had mapped out my how and I knew when I wanted to do it by roughly, when it came to when it came to making decisions, I knew because I knew exactly what I was doing. So in my first year as an NQT, I did that course, like I said. But the second year, I went to my school and I said, listen, there's this master's programme or postgraduate programme is to become a SENCO, it's going to cost a couple of thousand pounds, Uh, I would like to do that course, would you sponsor me? They're looking at me like, why would you want to do this? Because the role, the course that I'm talking about, there's not a position for that course in my school. Um, So it wouldn't really serve the school per se, it would do in terms of you've got a highly experienced person in that area, SEN coordination, but in a special school, it's not really a requirement, because you could say, all of us in some ways send specialists or send teachers, you know, so we all fill in in that way. Whereas in the mainstream school, it's usually one person that does that. But I'd already, I knew that my route to get into senior leadership was going to be through the SENCO route, because as a senior leader, typically you would have an area of expertise. And for me, it was going to be send behavior. So I did that. They paid for it. Yeah. Which is why not favor favor is one thing, but I was also incredibly good at my job. So you know when the best one of the best teachers in your school says i want this because it's going to make me a better teacher and it's going to help you in the short term they're going to give it to you so they did that other people are like why would you do that there's no senko in this school there's, we don't have one i said don't worry about me let me just do my senko you know?
1: this podcast is sponsored by mindset shift a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out not from the outside in We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year but that's something that you're interested in if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk now let's get back into today's episode for me that's something that i've kind of picked up in your story as well though is the willingness to ask like even when they offered you that job earlier on you're like no nah, i don't want to do that okay what what do so there's a willingness from your from your part to like this is what i want is this going to happen are you going to make this happen are you going to pay for me you're going to sponsor me a lot of times people think about stuff in their head and they're like oh they're going to say no so we don't ask you you repeatedly ask, and that's been really, really key for some of what you're sharing, which I think to it's, it's a point as well.
0: Yeah, you're right. I, I haven't always thought about it in that way, but I think when I've got good relationships with people that I work with, it also comes naturally as well because I'm not even asking for, like, the sake of having a plan or a scheme. It's like, oh, there's this thing I'm interested in by. Can I do it? And, you know, when you've got favour, you've got good relationships with people, and you're credible enough for it, People will grant you that. That's just the way of the world anyway. But like you said, you don't you don't get if you don't ask. So I asked <laughs> and they said yes. And I was like, fantastic, you know. So they paid for me to do the Senko program while I'm teaching, whilst they know also that there's no Senko in the school or whatever. So I did that. And uh, the next year I didn't use that Senko qualification, of course, because they didn't have a Senko. But now that I had the qualification, I started looking for jobs where they needed a Senko. So my Career mapping was now in full effect. I got the qualification I needed. Now the next step was to fulfil the role as a senko. The next step after that would be to then apply for a, a senior leadership position where the responsibility was senko because you have you have assistant head roles where the responsibility is 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 a senko. Yeah. So I did the next year. Obviously, I just qualified as a senko. You know, that was that. And at the end of that academic year. I started applying for senko positions, and I'm always transparent with my bosses. So I told them, I said, "I'm I'm basically going to be leaving, um, or I'm going to be leaving if I get a job role. Nothing to do with the school. I love it here. It's amazing. Genuinely was, but I'm now thinking about my progression. I'm capped here. I need to do this role. So I went for a uh, job interview, and it was a school in Woolwich. And basically, the position was I'd be senko across two schools. I'm looking for a senko role across one. Senko Road across two schools, primary and a secondary. They're not even attached. One is like two miles away from the other, and I'd have oversight over it over there. Great, like opportunity from a personal development point of view. Obviously, I would be seen as a senior leader. I had the interviews. The only interview I had got the job. Really, really good, like opportunity. I was really, I was really excited, and. I came back to my school with a heavy heart and I said to them, listen, you know, they wished me well anyway, but I said to them, I've got the job, I'm ready to go. And that same year, we were due to have an executive head teacher come in, a new one. And so he got wind of the fact I was trying to leave. And so he approached my boss at the time and said, is there anything we can do to keep Manny? Like, how are we going to, like, how are we going to keep this guy? Like, and obviously they're not, and they said to him, like, he's going because there's a a new opportunity, a better, like, you know, it's it's about his career. You know how Manny is, he's going to, he's going to. He's not going to just stay still if he's not progressing or whatever. So he just randomly walked into a meeting while I'm talking with my boss one day. I was like, Manny, this is a bit of out of context, but I need to speak to you. I said, all right, then. And he basically just said to me, like, what can we do to keep you? I said, listen, there's nothing about money. They offered me more money. To... I said, it's not about that. Like, I'm going because I need that experience with the qualification I have to fulfill it. There's a plan behind this. And uh, long story short, they basically offered to create a role create the Senko role in the school we didn't have one and so they created that Senko role and at the time I asked for a few things I asked for some assurances that there would be some real what's the word clarity as to what my role looked like here it wasn't just a title that I got but without me actually fulfilling those duties, because my actual experience of doing the role was really important. And, you know, they gave the guarantees and all that stuff. Unfortunately, things didn't work out how I wanted it to in terms of them fulfilling their end of the deal. I don't think it was particularly malicious. I think it was more so where they created a role for the sake of keeping someone. They didn't necessarily have a real, they didn't have a plan or a purpose for the role. Yeah. So they didn't the know system how wasn't to set up it wasn't set up for it so I'm I'm now being unfulfilled in different ways now and things being ad hoc or, or not really getting the time to do the things that are necessary so it was what it was um I don't really hold any particular grudge around that I still think you know God's hand and everything it, it was all on it because if not for that when my wife became pregnant shortly after that if I had if I wasn't there I would have been traveling somewhere that would have been quite far and I wouldn't have had the uh, flexibility to be there for my wife, I wouldn't have had the favor of my workplace to give me the time off that I needed. All of those little soft factors that you forget that play a part in your actual work experience. So although from a career point of view, it felt very unfulfilling, I I saw the positives in that actually I was still close to home. You know, there was other things, I was where I wanted to be, blah, blah, blah. So that was that, but very quickly, I knew though that I couldn't stay there in this kind of capacity in this way. So I started looking for a job. But at this point now, I'm still following my map. So I'm looking for assistant head roles. I didn't want to do it in my school because I knew that actually now that I've been in a special school for five years, I needed to now increase my my knowledge and my experience outside of special education for me to be truly well rounded and mainstream that word again it was really daunting to me I didn't want to go back remember I've ran away from mainstream education but I, I didn't like how it was set up but I knew I had to go back into it because there was a lot of stuff like my pedagogy understanding of curriculum teaching and learning there was a lot of things that I learned in a special school but there was a lot of things that I knew I wasn't also getting and I could only get it going back into a mainstream um, setup again so I started applying for jobs and then um it got to a point where I said to myself at this point I started working at the reach out project I'm a director there now and I started saying to myself, what do I really want to do? And I convinced myself that actually I didn't really think I wanted to be in education in this way anymore. I felt I felt like at the time I was ready to kind of go real left and just do maybe my charity full time. I was doing a lot of speaking at the time, writing a lot of blogs. So lots of opportunities were coming outside of work. And so I just thought to myself, no, maybe I want to take a different approach from education. So funny enough, I applied for one job. It was the last job I applied for. But I'd already said I'm not applying for any more jobs after this job because I'm now just gonna pursue how can I do my charity project full-time, make a salary from it, and then just kind of work my way around that. And that last job that I applied for is the, is the one job that I got an interview for. And um, I did the interview, my first ever senior leadership interview, and guess what happened? I got the job. Got the so right. now I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm like, God, what's going on now, man? Like, <laughs> Because I'd already said, I said to my directors, I'm like, listen, guys, I'm leaving. Like, I'm leaving education, guys. You know, like that whole, like, I'm leaving. Like, what are we doing now? That's best plan. And then I'm like, calling them, like, oh, guys, you won't believe it. Yeah, I got the assistant head role, man. Yeah, I guess I'm starting in September now. It was massive because it was massive. Like, it was a big deal. It's an assistant head teacher role. In context of my career, I had only actually been a full-time teacher for maybe five, six years. So I think even that in itself kind of showed how well my career had kind of had progressed, I guess. And um, and obviously, again, it came back to the whole making my parents proud again. I really felt that that was quite a symbolic moment as well. My parents just being incredibly proud. I, I fought battles with my dad a lot throughout my teaching career because of education, because he did not see it as a profession that was well respected. He didn't approve of me being a teacher when I first started, you know, the profession. And I had to really convince him a number of times that dad, like, I know you're perspective of this is how you've seen it in Nigeria, how you see people talk about it in politics. He kept saying, son, you're bigger than this. And I used to find find that very offensive because it's like, bigger than what? Like, teaching is a great job. It's the best profession in the world. In hindsight, I can kind of understand where he was getting at and what he was thinking, but I still protected my views on the profession and that this is a great job, dad. And I want to prove to you that I can get to the pinnacle of this. And if it's a financial thing, let me tell you that there's CEOs of multi-academy trusts that are on 250000 300000 a year. So from that point, even though that's not where my mind was at per se, but I was trying to prove to him that the way you talk about this, there's, if it's about money, I can bank on myself to be that person one day. That's levels. If that's, yeah, yeah, you know, um, so I think me becoming an assistant head teacher for my family, but more so for my dad was like a real, okay, okay, I'm, I'm proud of you, son, you know. Cause up until that point, there's no achievement in education where he'd be like, I'm proud of you, son. You became phase leader or Senko, you don't care about any of that. But I think that title for him was quite a big deal, but I think outside of my family and outside of my own personal kind of like feeling of like, yeah, you've done it, you done sick actually from where you started off in education for how long you've been in education for you've done sick. But I think one of the things that I always think about and a lot of people don't think that we think about it is I'm also very conscious that within education, black teachers make up a very small percentage as in a couple of percent. Yeah. we're oh, like unicorns. Unicorns. Yeah. A sure. couple of percent, you know. <laughs> in the profession, we make up a small amount as just black educators. But then if you talk about black senior leaders, we're like 2% of the whole country. So you could go South London and see a couple of them in a meeting, but just know you're seeing the bulk of the, Black senior leaders in one place, yeah, that I that meant to represent the country. So I knew and it was conscious in my mind that actually this was a big deal for the aesthetics of things as well. It was a big deal for the children that I'm about to now go and support. It's a big deal for the staff that I'm about to go and, and, and basically be leading. It was a big deal for my community, people that had been excluded like myself. I just saw that actually there was, there was so much power in representation and it wasn't really a pressure that weighed me down it made me feel proud it was like yeah because when people saw me or still speak to me and say oh so what do you do you always hear the sense of shock or surprise sometimes it's because i look young sometimes i know it's because oh wait you're a black guy you're a black man you're a black man that sounds like you you're a black man from east ham all of those things for some people is like like you said you're a unicorn you do not see it i don't know how far i'd have to go down the road before you see a similar situation so I was very, very aware and conscious of that. So I took on the role with pride and I was excited more so for the opportunity to learn. And I've been in that position for, for about a year now, just over a year. It's been challenging for those same reasons, being a young black man who is leading other people, being a young black man who is working with other people. And then also the actual intricacies of being a leader in itself. I've learned so much about leadership, the good and the bad. I had my own views of what leadership was before I even got into leadership. And now I look back and be like, boy, keep quiet. Like, because leadership has so much more to, to do. So yeah, so it's been good. It's been an interesting year for me. How do you define leadership? For me, leadership is leading by example and leading people to an end goal unapologetically, and i break it down. So the reason why I say leading by example is because it's almost impossible for you to lead on anything whether it's an IT, whether it's as a school leader, if you're not actually, if you do not believe or do not actually do or represent that very thing. So I'll give you an example. As an assistant head teacher, I have to be, I see myself, I have to be one of the best teachers in that school. So I'm leading by example. I think it's almost a bit of an oxymoron that you could call yourself a head teacher and not have a relative standard of, great, amazing teaching capabilities. So when I say leading by example, I mean it from a very practical point of view. But then when I say being unapologetic in your leadership, what I mean by that is, one thing I've learned is you have a vision and not everybody, no one, 90% of people don't ever see your vision or see things how you see it. I think leadership is convincing people that your way of doing things or what your vision is, is worth pursuing and getting them there. That for me is leadership because you can't be everyone's friend. Unfortunately, I've learned that lesson. You could be nice to people. You could, you can't be everyone's friend. Yeah. You can't always be nice about things. Yeah. So all those little soft factors that I thought leadership was about how you speak to people, whatever, they all matter. But ultimately it's having a vision and getting people to come along on that journey with you. And so the reason why i say you have to be unapologetic is you will get people even within your own camp that will be like "Uh, uh-uh, i don't think that makes sense that doesn't work and you're like i'm not really asking we're going to do it because the respect you get is usually when people see that your vision or your plans or your purpose was right and that's where the respect comes and the respect comes not just from you being right but from people being like oh this guy sees something we don't see but he also knows how to get there or how to get people to get what it is that he wants so when I define leadership, I, I really do look at it as just uh, an opportunity to lead people to what you see as the promised land and being able to do so successfully. And then there's many things that come within that, <laughs> you know, employing people, second people, treating people with kindness, treating people with, you know, harsh, harshness, empowering people. So many aspects of leadership that I've learned in the last year that make up a good leader. But but I don't ever take for granted that. I also think being authentic. Being authentic and having integrity for me are also massive of my specific leadership style. But then leadership style is a different thing altogether. You know that, obviously, as an executive coach. So I have my vision of what leadership is, but I also have a style and I appreciate that other people have different styles. And if you ask people about what my style is, I'm assuming they will tell you that I am compassionate, empathetic, integrity, you know, um, communication, all of those things. I don't necessarily think they are what makes a great leader. They're just my leadership style. But if you look at the makeup of my team, we all have different ingredients to bring to the the table. And so we've got some that are a lot more pragmatic, very objective. (laughs) They call you into the office, it's bam, 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 bam. But they know what they're talking about. And although they're not kind and friendly like Emmanuel is, but you still need that. I need that because you can't always be the good cop. You need the bad cop. You need the person that, like, everyone knows. When you go to her, just know, don't even waste your time talking about your life story. She doesn't care because she just wants to know, did you do your job today? And you need that. Whereas with me, you come and sit in my office and it's an open-door policy. I've got a million things to do. You walk into my office, I'm like, so how can I help you today? I'm scratching my head, like, how am I going to do this work? But let me listen to what this person is saying. But you need that. So, so yeah, so leadership for me is... um. Is a, it's, it's very important and it has many different aspects to it. And there's many different styles that you can take. Listening to your story has been intriguing in so many ways
1: and seeing your growth from where you started, to experiences you've had to school, to navigating tragedy, to get into where you've got to right now. For me, is um it's, it just goes to show how much, one, strength and courage that we all have but also how I love life experiences sometimes can really just help us to see things completely differently and reshape and focus up if we so choose to. Because there's also another school of thought that said you could have gone down a completely different path with what happened to you, but you actually chose to use it and to help you to kind of refocus and to kind of build that legacy. And like I said, you doing what you're doing as a black assistant head is such a rarity. But not only that, but going there with a the vision of how you were at school and knowing the things that went right, you create a different path, a different learning experience for kids. For me, is so crucial. But there's one part of the story that I'm very curious about as we wrap up. Your girlfriend now, your wife has been with you all the way throughout, from you being an aspiring rapper <laughs> to everything that you're doing right now. How was that journey navigating your relationship and going through the different things that you're going through with a partner right next to you because that's another element that adds
0: how we approach life yeah my wife she's incredible the reason why i say my wife is incredible is because um she's taught me a lot about life and one of the things she's taught me is that um people change and if you give people enough grace and patience and time and investment you know there is something really really good on the other side of that and the reason why i say that is because she met me as a 20 year old i think i was 20 i had no aspiration particularly i had no plan or purpose i didn't know what i was going to do I, I thought i was going to be a rapper but other than that like i had no plan or purpose i had no money to offer her or to give her i was borderline and I'm miserable as a 19 20 year old and i even had very skewed views one of the first conversations i had with her is i'm never getting married by the way we weren't even courting. we knew each other as like friends but i said to her I said to her, oh, yeah, yeah, nah, I'm never getting married, like, nah. And she always reflects back on that. She said, you know, like, I remember you saying that, like, you're such a, you was. What kind of bars (laughs) that?" She said, I thought you were so weird. And it wasn't bars because we weren't talking like that, like, like, we were, like, we were introduced as, like, a friendship group, blah, blah, blah. So, so this was me just talking loosely, but she, she always remembers that. She always says, like, do you remember when you said you would never get married? Like, I used to think you were so weird, like, what's this guy's problem? But I meant it. And I say all of that to say this: that like she met me when I was at a particular point in my life, a young boy with nothing to really offer, but she clearly saw my potential because she was with me at the time, and she stuck with me when I didn't even know how I was going to pay for a train to go and see her in, in in university because I was only working two hours a day after I had left university. You know, she stuck with me when I was going through my depression, and I had one. I had at least one suicide attempt that she was present for, to be able to get me through. You know, she stuck with me when me being a typical young man who didn't really see what being a man looked like, in some ways you could say was about to waste her time. And she had to remind me, what do you want to do with your life? And what do you want to do with us? Because I'm not about to have my time wasted and I had to really dig deep and think to myself, well, let me think about what I wanna do with my life. And one of of those questions was, do I wanna spend the rest of that time with you? And she was there in that process to be able to remind me, like, I'm not the kind of girl where you just, you just don't really think about what you're going to do next, we're just coasting. I'm letting you know I've got my own plans. And she saw me through that process, you know? And she saw me go from a single guy to being married and navigating what it's like to be a husband, which hasn't been easy. I've been married for four years and we were together eight years before that. And I wasn't the same person I was when I was 20 to when I was 28, and I got married to her. And then you realize that living with someone has its own complexities and, if, and difficulties. So I go a real long way to basically describing someone who I think has been the most important per- person in this journey, other than God Himself, because. She's been a lifelong friend, and I've needed that friend. In many of my darkest moments, she was the only person I had. She saw me when I had nothing, and she saw me when I had something. She saw me when I financially struggled. She saw me when I had money. No matter good or bad, low or whatever it is, she's always been there to stick with me. She's shown me what loyalty looks like. And so I think for me, and then she's also blessed me with my daughter, which is been one of the proudest moments of my life, you know. My daughter's two years old now, and so I'm always forever grateful that I just have a woman that I can trust, but also a woman that I can trust with my daughter's life, God forbid, if anything happened to me. And so I think in many ways, she's been there for me, but I think I can kind of easily say, I don't think I would be where I'm at or be who I am today without my wife in my life, because it would have been physically impossible, you know. On my worst days when I'm sick, when I'm like... Yeah, I'm an assistant head teacher, but I don't think I can go in tomorrow because I am physically struggling. I'm, you know, and she's the person that has to say to me sometimes, "You got to go in, man. Just, just, just do it." She's that push, you know. On my darkest days, my darkest moments, she's there. On my best days, she's there. She's just there, you know. Um, and so I think for me, it's really important to kind of stress that, like no man is an island and so whether you're married or whether you have someone or not like there's no way i would have achieved or done anything i've done without the support of my wife but then also my mum's a massive factor in all of this as well key advocates for me in every one of my schools or institutions key adults yeah having other people there to support you on your journey is, is very very important and my wife single-handedly you know or undoubtedly should i say is probably the most important person in that in that journey um Because again, like I said, she saw me when I had nothing. So all that I achieve now, she can genuinely say, I've seen him grow, develop, become what he is. Um, And hopefully I can make her proud and everything I say I want to do and achieve by the time I go and leave this earth, she can be like, well, actually, if you saw what he was doing at 10, 11, 12 at night to get there, that's someone that really cares about giving a better life to his family, for his children, for himself. You know, she knows more than anybody else like what it is that I've gone through, what I do. So yeah, so that is my that's my appreciation post for for my partner, but definitely without her, none of this is possible. By God, none of this is possible for sure. Yeah. So
1: well it's always amazing to just to see people and to really understand people and I need to give a special shout out to um to Shani actually. is the one that connected both of us together. And Shani's yes. like, you need to have a conversation. <laughs> she's, she's like, got you Shani. need to have a conversation with Emmanuel. And she's like, I ain't gonna say nothing else. You just need to have a conversation with Emmanuel. And she was she was so on point. Like, so like so much stuff that even when you were like talk today, I'm like, it's just bringing back so many memories. So thank you. Thank you for just being open, being vulnerable, being sharing. And thank you also for being very inspirational. Like you said, when you were able to go to the spaces and places where you saw the first black head teachers, now people can look at you as, or are people like Mania in that space, as someone who had, who wrote down their purpose and to achieved the things that they wanted to achieve and then some. So you are being inspiration to the next generation coming up. You are leaving that legacy in so many areas, not just in school, but you said, the writing, the public speaking. Um, the work you're doing reach Our project all of those kind of different areas you're making a massive impact to a lot of youngers coming
0: up so you sir are appreciated for all you do so thank you very much for saying no worries man thank you thank you for having me and like you said big up Shani every time because she did facilitate and make this happen but but yeah no it's been a it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure this is Everyday Leadership see you next week
1: While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out.
0: I was an intern at the time, but I had already two master's degrees because I'm French, right? So in France, you got this elite state. So I came to the UK. Uh, I had already. I didn't think. I didn't understand this idea of graduates. I thought that you needed to have finished your full studies. When actually, no, you needed just to have a bachelor.